The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. I'm a new student with the Camera Culture Group. Um, but for a little over a year, I worked at a company called MITRE, which one of them's up the road, the other one's in D.C. Um, and we sort of on and off worked on this project. Um, I, uh, myself with a guy named Gary and Ravi, and then Mark Lavoie, who is from Stanford. And together, we eventually put together a nice project. Um, but it took a bit. So 2009, 2008 is kind of the general time frame we did this. Um, but this is going along the lines of uh, capturing sort of multi-domain or multi-dimensional data, uh, spectral data, or, or polarimetric information, or high dynamic range um, with your camera, um, but doing it in a single snapshot. So I'll discuss that in a little bit of detail. Um, but first, just some background. Um, just to give me an idea of what I mean when I say multi-domain. Um, so there, we know there's a ton of pixels. Ramesh showed some slides of the increase in number of pixels per sensor and whatnot. Um, and the sort of thrust of this research was uh, finding a new way to use those pixels besides just spatial resolution. Um, we think there's plenty of spatial resolution out there. Um, what about color or some other uh, uh, interesting properties of light to capture? So some of those include polarization. So here. Um, a group used a polarimeter to distinguish a man-made object. This is metal from uh, some, some plants. Um, the way it works is metal reflects more polarized light than a plant does, which actually reflects a little bit of polarized light. Um, and they can pick out objects like that. I'll show some examples of that, what we did later, I think. Um, anyways, you can see cool effects like birefringence um, in glasses or transparent media. Um, and then obviously what's known for photographers is it helps um, uh, de, I, get, I forget the word, but clarify uh, sort of haziness um, in images of water because water reflects polarized light and so does the sky. So you get a clear blue sky with a polarizing filter um, for conventional photography. You can also do multispectral imaging, um, which is just capturing a very specific spectral information instead of just red, green, and blue, which are huge sort of bands in the um, frequency dimension. These are very narrow band um, images. These are both captured over time. So this one shows a sort of aerial view. They're often used in, in airplanes um, to capture information about foliage or, or stuff. USGS is using them a lot. Um, and then this is an example of detecting blood oxygenation. So this is an image of a thumb next to another thumb. One has a rubber band wrapped around it, the other one doesn't, so you can obviously tell the difference. And then high dynamic range imaging, which Hanke talked about. So we want to capture all that in a single snapshot. Um, and basically what happens when you want to do that is you're presented with this huge um, dimensionality mismatch, which is you know kind of true of all um, camera capture techniques. You just have this two-dimensional sensor, um, and a small one, it's flat. Um, soon it might not be flat, but right now it is. And you also have the time dimension to work over. But you have the seven or more, arguably, seven dimensions of information out there. You have a four-dimensional light field, which I guess you'll learn about more. Some of you might know about. You also have the 
temporal, the changing of whatever scene you're looking at. And you have spectral and polarization information. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways that people have come up with to capture this, and I'll talk about some. Um, one of the most direct is just doing it over time. Um, so this is a picture of one of the first uh, color motion picture processes. It's called Kinema Color. Um, what they did is they just put a rotating green and red filter in front of a, a regular old uh, movie film camera, and it captured sequential images. Then when they projected it, they didn't have blue for some reason. I don't know why. But when they projected it, they just projected it through the same rotating color filter. And you get, and your eyes couldn't distinguish the, the fast frame rate, so it looked like a color film. Um, and then similar things have been done with uh, hyperspectral imaging. So the way a pushroom hyperspectral imager works is it's um, a two-dimensional sensor. One dimension is used to capture spatial information, and the other is used to capture spectral information. And you put it up on a plane, and it flies, and it sweeps out the second spatial dimension. So you're capturing this three-dimensional data cube um, in over time in two dimensions, but you're capturing um, spectrum in full dimension. So a little bit different. Um, and then this is very similar to what Amkit was talking about, but there's tons of different ways to do that over, over um, spatial encoding. So you can work over time, you can also work over space. The Bayer filter image, I think this is the exact image that you should. Um, we, you guys talked about it. People have also done it with polarization filters, and then Amkit also talked about assorted pixels, um, which was from Sri Nair's group, and you kind of mix and match uh, neutral density and polarization and spectral filters on them all over a sensor. The problem with that is it's extremely hard to, to sort of fabricate. Um, and once you, once you make it, you're stuck with it. So you can't very easily take off your lens and peel off your filters and take, put another one on it. Very you know, sensitive to alignment and stuff. Um, so other people have, have tried capturing um, multispectral information or other types of information with just many cameras. So you guys saw the Profusion camera we had on the first day. Um, this is very, a very simple, um, this similar design called Periodic or Tombow, if you also learned about, um, where you just put different color filters over each little camera, and you can get a single snapshot from all the cameras. Um, the problem with this is um, there's issues of registration and alignment um, with the cameras, and it's, it's expensive. That, that camera costs $10,000. So it's, you know, it's a good method, but um, our method is a little bit different, I guess. Uh, the third way, I think the coolest way of doing this is with this method called co-division multiplexing. There's only a couple of examples of this, but basically you computationally capture, you capture a three-dimensional data cube on two dimensions, and then computationally um, try and guess the third dimension. So you're, not, you're trading off in computational power and also error associated with your estimations. Um, but some examples of this is this um, PASI, which was developed at Duke, um, and it's a single snapshot spectral imager, similar to what we do. Um, what they do is they put a, a coded mask in an intermediate image plane, and it shifts uh, the data cube um, sort of in three dimensions, and they can estimate um, color, um, many color channels from a single image. And a similar, very famous example of that is called CETIS. Um, it stands for... And computed, computed tomography infrared spectrometer. But it, it was invented in Arizona, and what they do is they use a very, very special, cool um, sort of holographic plate. And with that, the, you can take an image, and the holographic plate makes this very interesting spectral dispersion, which they know exactly how it's being dispersed, so they can um, reverse the spectral, spectral dispersion 
to get a full dimensional image, um, but also have all this color information. The problem with it is the, the uh, hologram they use is very sensitive to directionality of light, so it has a very, very narrow field of view. Um, so basically, I have a really cool movie of some guy like lighting a lighter, and you see all this spectral stuff, but that's as wide as the field of view is, is like one little lighter. Uh, but it's a really cool um, um, so, just a basic idea of, of our approach. I won't get into too many details, I'll go over this kind of quickly. Um, but you have a camera, right? And you're capturing two spots on an object. Um, one's red, one's blue. And at the center, the rays, let's pick the red spot, are both integrated at the center. Um, so you can't tell which ray um, came from where um, in either part of the lens. If you misfocus your sensor, um, you can tell once again. So you know this ray is not hit, not integrating with that one. So you know it's, it's um, coming from this spot in the lines and likewise for that one. But when you misfocus something, everything just blurs together. There's no separation spatially of the, the rays. Um, it's hard to distinguish them. Um, unless you're doing like astronomical imaging where those, the stars are surrounded by black, then we have a chance. Um, <coughs> what we did is we put a pinhole array um, on top of the sensor. Um, and that has a couple interesting properties. It's very similar to a light field. I won't really get into it. But basically what it allows you to do is it allows you to take your Bayer filter array that you originally had at the sensor plane and you just kind of move it up into the lens. So now instead of having a repeated Bayer filter pattern uh, over your, your, your um, focal plane, you just have one filter array and you can stick it in your lens. And what each of the pinholes are doing is they're effectively imaging this aperture. So you can think of like each of these being a little pinhole camera, and each of them, all they can see is this filter, right? So you're creating this tiled filter, right? Uh, but it's also still capturing uh, the information about the object. Um, so for example, if you put a red filter in this part of the array and a blue filter there, the red filter will attenuate the blue ray, um, so you'll see it figure out it's red there on a product. This was a, a grayscale sensor, only one of the sensor areas will, will light up. Same with the blue filter area on the other. Um, so that's the general idea um, but the, the trade off with this is now you have a reduced spatial, res spatial resolution I mean, your spatial resolution of your output image is going to be given by the number of pinholes you have in your pinhole array. Um, and your, your, your filter resolution or whatever it's not really color resolution anymore because we're going to put different types of filters in here it's going to be given by the number of filters you stick in your filter array um, and there's an interesting trade off there which I might have time to talk about. I won't really talk about the specifics. Um, basically, the, just the, since we have a, a digital image now on a film sort of setup, this wouldn't work at all because you can't really cut out the little pieces of different spectral areas and, and stitch them together. It would be really difficult. Um, you could re reverse project it, which people have done with film. Um, but anyways, uh, we just take different areas. So let's say, um, and this is just sort of a, a piece of a, an image, which I'll show you later. Um, and each of these is kind of not projecting well. Each of these white boxes is the area where the filters are being projected. So there's a three by three filter array. Um, the center one, I think, is a very uh, non-dense uh, filter. So let's say this is a green filter from this area. You can take all these green filters, stitch them together, and make a green image. And let's say this is the red filter area. You can do that and make the red image. Um, you can just do that digitally. It's just like a lookup table. It's very straightforward. Um, and this is what our setup looked like. We just had a regular lens. It's a Nikon lens. It was, you know, like $100. And they're really easy to take apart. So if any of you ever wants for whatever your project for this class, 
to put stuff in the aperture of a lens. Um, come to me, I can teach you how to do it in like five minutes, and it'll take you like 30 seconds each time to undo the lens and put it back together. Um, but we put color filters in there. Um, you can't really see them that well, but we just put these little color filter discs that I made. And then we also, I'll show you some results for something I did this summer. I put a spectral filter in the aperture, which changes our design to sort of a snapshot spectral imager. And then here we have our pinhole array. Um, this is a CCD, and this is, uh, yeah, we just kind of sandwich a pinhole array right up against the CCD. And the cover glass over the CCD, which is like a millimeter thick, um, sort of dictates the distance between the two. Um, so here's some example images. This is just the image, um, the raw data image. And here's a zoomed up version. You can kind of see each little pinhole region close up. Um, and then you could do some Lambertian division, which is just sort of uh, normalizing the image because instead of using, so basically we, we wanted to use a lens slit array, um, which is just the, almost the same thing as a pinhole array. Um, Ankit showed you some slides from Stanford where they have the lens slit array. That's just really expensive, and once you get it, it's sort of fixed. Um, pinhole, array, pinhole arrays you can print off, and you can vary the distances between pinholes and the sizes of pinholes. So it's a much easier way to check um, when you're doing an experiment. But uh, they have imperfections, obviously, especially from printing. So that's why we did the inversion division, to sort of get rid of those imperfections. Um, and so this was done on a grayscale sensor. So it's just a you know, gray sensor, no color information. But we put six filters in the aperture for this picture. A red, green, and blue filter, and then three polarizers. So we took an image, and the image is of, there's a big TV back here, and there's a color chart here, and a book. Um, and then a polarizer sheet over here. Um, but you can see we got a color image, which kind of approximates the color of the scene pretty well. Yes? When you say printing, when you say printing? Um, so there's this company called Pageworks. It's actually in Cambridge. And what's the process called? I'm blanking. It's, it's just printing. You just print black and you don't want You just leave out a point. So it's on a transparency. So it's just like printing a transparency. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Just easy to yeah. make them. Like, and the contrast isn't great, but it's because there is the trans, the uh, layout goes through. Uh, yeah. 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 And laser cutting would work. Laser cut. No, it wouldn't have. So the pinhole sizes are about 50 microns. So I don't think the laser. Could you laser cut on something that then you shrink? That's what we're trying to do last year. And it worked. Uh, well, I mean, it does work. Okay. Right? For what we wanted to do, we needed still much more. So it's not doing that. Okay. But, but yeah, it works. You, you print on a shrinking and then... And it's on the It shrinks and it is... Okay. It's not uniform, but... Okay. Yeah, so yeah, you just print on a transparency. But you have to use, like, a... You can't just do it on a, a normal printer. You need a high-resolution printer. Well, we did, because we needed, like, 25 micron resolution. 720, I think, DPI is what it was. Um, but anyway, so in, in one image we get a color picture, but we also get a degree of polar polarization picture. So you can see the TVs polarized, these TVs have polarizers in them, and then you can kind of see down there, there's a polarizer down there over a resolution chart. Um, so that was a simple example. Then we did one with 16 filters. Um, so basically I bought every filter I could from Edmunds, that was cheap, and <laughs> put them in a filter, right? So we have red, green, blue, yellow, magenta, cyan. I got an IR filter. Um, I got a bunch of different polarizers um, oriented at different um, sort of angles. You get a precise degree of polarization measurement. 
and then I put three neutral density filters. And so these are the 16 images you get from one single image. Um, you just separate them with a lookup table. Um, so you can see up here is sort of the color information. It's kind of hard to see from the projection, but the spots on the color wheel are changing, uh, and like the checkerboard pattern is changing for the color. Um, the near IR is really dark, and I've got a lamp here, which is saturated on some, um, but you can see the resolution chart with the near IR. Um, the polarization filter, you can see kind of uh, the TV screen is changing in, in um, how bright it is and stuff. And then neutral density is just darker. So if I understand, the filters should all be on the same plane. What's that? The filters should all be on the same plane. Yeah. 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 But when you break, you stack them on top of each other. No, they're not stacked on top of each other, actually. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. So here are the filters. They're just, it's hard to see on the projector. Um, but here you can see. It's just this little uh, three by three filter array. Here you can kind of see. So basically, it's just it literally a flat two D array of filters, and I put it right on the aperture stop. Um, you have about this much room on the aperture stop, a little bit bigger than a quarter or so. So you can put as many filters in that space as you can. So this also decreases resolution. Yeah, again, definitely. Definitely. So so your your spatial resolution is going to be decreased at least proportional. If you did it perfectly and you put one pinhole image of each filter to one pixel, it would be decreased by the number of filters, right? So I have 16 filters. My spatial resolution is going to be at least 1 16th the original spatial resolution. That's a critical point. Um, so the, these are very low spatial resolution images. So the effect is very similar to what they are. Exactly. It's, yeah. So it's the same thing as a Bayer filter, right? You have a red, green, and blue filter. But, uh, and it's the third. But the filters on the lens, right? So it's not on, on, on the sensor. So how, how do you know which actually pixels are affected by those guys? Yeah, so so each image. So it, because if you go back to this slide, when you show, okay, this this path of the red was blue. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can't actually know exactly which pixel was affected by yeah. So so I'm sticking a pinhole array over the sensor, right? So the pinhole array is going to create multiple images, right? Each one of these dots is a pinhole array image, essentially. And we zoom into that. I'm highlighting one pinhole array image with this white box, right? And so I know just from a priori knowledge when I put the filter array in there that this center fil this center filter is a red filter. I know the one in the upper left is a green filter. The one in the upper right is a blue filter, for example, right? Because I put the filter array in there. So now under each pinhole, I have maybe, you know, ideally I would have nine pixels, and I would know which each pixel corresponds to, just from the orientation of how I put the filter array in there. Um, and, the, and the focal lens has to be fixed in order for this to work, right? Yes. So I, I kind of glanced over that. Um, I skipped that slide. But yes, like, you basically have to be imaged at infinity. You can't change the focus. Um, once you change the focus, um, you're basically crossing those rays in front of the sensor plane, and that's that's destroying your your detected detection diversity. So the scene has to be planar. Yeah. And it has to be Lambertian. The scene has to be planar and Lambertian. Well, not technically Lambertian. It has to emit polarization or spectral information. But they should all be all, all the same. Yeah. Right. Rays. Did you try uh, removing the effect of reducing the spatial resolution by 
trying to demodulate because see the pinhole array is basically a transparency which sort of has a modulation function on it. So, so if we demodulate it on computers once the image has been captured, you can actually regain the spatial resolution reduced by the modulation. Right? Um, I don't really know that you mean by modulation. I mean, basically, since you have filters in your aperture, those are attenuating light. But that's like, like operating a function over the image, right? Yeah, but you're also mixing in all this diversity, right? So now you have all this spectral and polarization diversity mixed in from the different filters, which are going to change depending on your spatial location, right? So if I have a polarized object up here, it'll be, you know, so modulated by one polarizer but not by another. It's, okay. it's just like there. I mean, you can develop some sophisticated mosaicing algorithm that fills in the missing information, but it's going to just be hard to It's not going to be physically yeah. correct. Okay. <coughs> um, okay, I'll just try and finish up. So just an example of using those 16 images. Um, people ask, well, why do you want 16 images of all these different things? So I try to come up with a clever example. <laughs> but basically, you can create a color image, right? And you have this huge saturated area um, from the sun or from a lamp or whatever. So you can just make a quick HDR image um, using the free HDR filters on top of the color information. So now you can see there's kind of like a resolution chart back there. Um, and then what you can do is take a degree of polarization measurement using the five polarization filters. And that'll kind of find things that are reflecting polarized light or emitting polarized light. So, for example, the man-made object um, sort of example I showed you before, you can pick out which objects are man-made, which are leaves or whatever. And you can also pick out things emitting IR information with the near IR filter. So people, or well, I guess plants emit near IR more than people. But uh, if, I, if it was uh, extended into the IR range, you could identify people. Um, but you would need a better sensor than a regular CCD. Um, so you combine all those, and I did it with 12 different filters out of the 16, and I created this sort of foveated or region of interest um, extended dynamic range uh, color image. And you can see there's some errors, obviously, um, and that's because when I was trying to find polarization, for example, if it's a low-intensity area, it's not going to emit any real information about polarization. It's just going to be a dark area. Things like that are, are causing error. And also, uh, from the, the angular for the different planes perspective, you can kind of see down here that there's a bar sticking out, and that's because um, as things get closer, um, error associated with um, essentially having different perspectives on an object becomes apparent. So it only works for planar objects towards infinity, or it works best. Um, so the next example, this is I just did this over the summer for a quick uh, paper. Instead of putting a filter array, we put a spectral filter in the aperture down here. Um, and what this does is essentially like a grading, just splits up the incoming light into all different wavelengths. It went from 400 to 700 nanometers, so across the color spectrum, and it had a um, resolution of about 10 nanometers, so that's pretty good. And they're cheap, they're like 200 bucks at Edmunds, um, and they're small enough to fit in an aperture. Um, so they're really useful to do experiments with cameras. Um, so I just took a picture of some crayons and picking out different pixels. So this is a reduced resolution image of some crayons. But picking out certain pixels, you can get a, it was roughly you know, a 25 pixel um, resolution of the 400 to 700 nanometer range. So you can see this is magenta, has the red and blue components, but not the green, teal, orange, blue. Um, 
So yeah, and I have one more example. Is that um, so this is the different same crayons, different pictures. But I just so I noticed when I was doing the experiment that if I like had the lights on or if I had another light on, I would just get really different results. And I was like scratching my head, why does that happen? Well, it's obvious because fluorescent lights emit so much different spectral spectral information. Our eyes just can't really tell. But these lights versus these fluorescent lights have a very different spectral um, distribution. So I didn't really label them. But these are definitely just fluorescent lights, or maybe one's fluorescent lights and one's another desktop fluorescent light. So you can see the sharp peak for this. Most pixels just have a sharp peak. Um, our eyes just integrate over all of that, so we don't really notice it. It just looks like white light. But if I just put on a regular desk lamp, like an old-fashioned bulb, you get this sort of distribution. So these are all from the same exact pixel, but I was just changing the lights in the room. So that's pretty interesting. Basically, the, the, the light coming in is uh, one duplication of the incident. Incident light and, and the color of the... Exactly. Exactly. So... <clears throat> yeah. That's it. Any questions? How many channels do you have from this? Um, roughly 25. It just depends on your pinhole array pitch, right? Another thing, so I really want to do this and make a better filter because the, the filter I use is just a one-dimensional filter. Um, it's generally used for um, like laser experiments. So you like hit the laser on it and you can tilt it different ways and select a specific wavelength if, if the laser is more broadband than 10 nanometers. Um, so it was only one dimensional, right? So it would be cool, much better and more efficient if I had a two-dimensional filter so that I could use all the, all the area. But yeah, roughly 25. 25 Any other questions? Yeah. So those graphs are made out of 25 tables? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another question was, in your experiment, like, so each pinhole is making an image of the, of the filter. filter. Yeah. How much in your experiment, how many of the pixels were just wasted on? On, on like, the border. Yeah, 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 a lot, a lot. <laughs> a lot. So I started with a, uh, I think it was 10 megapixel sensor, and my spatial resolution was around 300 by 300 for each of the images. So, I mean, that's for, like, you know, something like 16 filters or 9 filters. So the time is getting thrown away somewhere. Um, and each, each, each filter is not being imaged to one single pixel. It's being imaged to like a 3x3 three three or 4x4 four four array of pixels. So, I mean, it's incredibly wasteful, but it's just an idea. So you could really fine-tune it probably make it more efficient. I think the big advantage is you can do all of those things while putting the filter in the lens and not have to put it on the sensor. So, like... Someone was asking, can you change this? Can you so yes, you can just take it out and put a new one. You can get a different spectral response if you need it. So that's what's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Did, can you say something about the diffraction issues? Did you have any? Yeah, um, a little bit. So, so pinholes are really pretty inefficient, pretty bad at resolving light, um, which you guys might learn about. So, so lenses. Um, Everything has an associate. It's called a point spread function. I don't know if you've heard that term, but basically a blur spot size. Pinhole blur spot sizes are more of a geometric projection of the size of the pinhole. So it'll, you want to let a lot of light through with a pinhole, um, but depending on the size of the pinhole, you could just imagine light just passing straight through the pinhole, right? And not changing its direction. So that light will have the blur spot size roughly the size of the actual pinhole. 
So that poor spot size, in my case, I was using 50 micron pinholes. It's going to be 50 micron, which is relatively large because uh, the pixel is about 10 microns. So that's why I was imaging to about 5 pixels per filter. Um, if I used a lens lit array, it would have been much, much better. Um, diffraction effects and whatnot would have been much less. Um, I think we're going to be talking about using a lens lit array in yeah. other projects. And an another interesting thing is that um, so the point spread function in a camera, or the blur spot in a camera, is given by the shape of the aperture. So if you have, you're taking a picture and you go out of focus, <coughs> the things out of focus have a circle, right? Like a little blur spot. That's because the aperture is a circle, right? If it was a square aperture, the things would have a square, and so on. But when you're in focus, even the little blur spot is given by the shape of the aperture. So I was putting all these crazy filters in the aperture. And each filter is going to change the point spread function depending on, on the color of the scene. So basically across my image I was getting many different types of point spread functions. Some were strange you know, shapes because of the different properties of the objects in the scene. So it's, it's very different problems to, to try and fix or analyze because um, of all the filters in the app. I have just a couple of more points I wanted to make before we end. Uh, we've seen, uh, like right at the start, beginning of the class, I had these four or five things that we wanted to improve about cameras, and one of them was improving the spatial resolution. So in the case of film, it's sort of ambiguous because there is no, it's hard to define what resolution is for film, but for sensors or for digital, it's the, usually the, just the number of pixels, and it would be hard to imagine how you can increase the information you're coming getting from a fixed number of pixels. But there are techniques for doing that, and the most popular ones are what's called super resolution. I'm not going to go too much into deep the detail of what super resolution is and how you do it, but just to give you an intuition, the idea is that you take an image with your camera fixed at one position, and then you move the image sensor by a fraction of the pixel size, and then you take another image. And since you've moved it by a fraction of a pixel size, the, you you, the information that you capture is actually different from the first one. And you can combine these two images together to get a higher resolution image. Uh, there are obviously issues with that, one of which is that you have to move the sensor by less than a pixel size, which is usually one or two microns, and it has to be very precisely controlled. So you find this in really high-end cameras. I think Synar makes cameras which, which do this medium format, big medium format cameras. And there are also fundamental limits to how much you can do using this. You cannot just, you can usually not go beyond a 3x or a 4x or even just a 2x increase in resolution. Anything beyond that is what they call hallucination. It's you may create an image which is 100x resolution, but it doesn't have any information in those higher frequencies. So that's the super resolution. So panoramas over time is just taking an image and just scanning it like this and stitching them all together, create a large panorama. You have a big high resolution image and you do so, and in doing so you also get a wider field of view. So recently this technique was adopted by people at Microsoft Research and University of Constance where they built a device that essentially scanned the whole scene and took a whole bunch of images. So this one was created out of 800 images that were captured over the period of a few hours. And then they were all, they, they found correspondence points and essentially just stitched them together to create this one large 1.5 megapixel image, I think. 
or 3.5 gigapixel image. And just to give you a sense for how much information is there, you can actually see the person sitting inside that crane or whatever that is. And there is a website, I think it's called Gigapan, is what the device, like they sell this device now, and Microsoft gives you the software, I think it's called HD View, which you can use to both view these images and also generate your own images. And just, you, you buy this thing, you put your camera on it, it sits there and takes images for a few hours, and then you just stitch them all together. Uh, the, there is also a group, there's a husband and wife group, couple who, who've been doing this for a while using film photography. They have this large format film camera that they go out and take these huge gigapixel images with and they have their own custom scanners in order to scan them and get a digital image out of it. And a number of other people who, who've done this kind of thing. But if this is a consumer device, how, how I imagine is this actually having the camera move around a lot? So, so the way they have is something like this. If you can see it, it's, it, it just rotates and takes multiple images. <laughs> it doesn't have to move around. So it's this thing. The one uh, they, the one that they're selling is it has a, it's a, it has a very cute like shutter release button also. So you can just use any camera and as long as you can just move the arm and have it so that it can hit the shutter release button and it will go out and you can I think program it to say how many images you want and so on. So either you can just create a panorama or you can create a very, very high resolution panorama like that. So some of the challenges in in this thing that I just want to point out is uh, there's a huge variation in, uh, in intensity and this is something that we sort of discussed, the high dynamic range issues. When you're moving the camera and you're doing all of this, you could, you could have parts of the image that are much, much, much darker than other parts or much brighter. And then how do you stitch them together? How, what kind of exposure issues do you have to take care of? Because if you just do auto exposure, then one part of the image may be too bright than the other. Um, and you, they, it might not line up, you might not get the alignment right, or you might have issues with finding correspondences. And that's all of that is taken care of in the software from Microsoft called HDView. Another way of doing higher resolution, this is again going back to those the three basic things. The, this this one I just talked about. This was epsilon in in time, but you could do epsilon in sensors. You can have a 500 cameras, and you just take lots of images at the same time. So this is similar to the uh, camera array we saw earlier. But the difference in this is that uh, the cameras are both are all looking out uh, or sort of parallel to one another. Uh, in the previous case, they were all looking at something in between. So there was a larger overlap. In this, the overlap is much less. It's, uh, it says 50%. I think it's even less than that. And what you can do with this is you can get all of these images and then just again find the correspondences and fix, just stitch them all together and get something like this. This is a very, very high resolution and uh, uh, it has lots of information. And then again, you can again those find those correspondences warp the images, stitch them together. But there's also uh, issues of geometric and color calibration and also high dynamic range issues because which I briefly discussed earlier. So this is what you get once you fix all of those. And for some reason it's really dark here. And again it shows you can really zoom in and get a high resolution image. I don't think this is anywhere close to a real pixel because this, this is a much older project. 
and uh, again similar to the assorted pixels they actually have different exposures for different cameras and so you can combine all of that information together to get not just a high resolution image but also a high resolution high dynamic range image the last thing I want to talk about is increasing the temporal resolution so uh, so far we've seen how we can increase the spatial resolution we've seen how we can increase the dynamic range and the uh, focus, depth of field, and sort of the other thing that remains is the temporal resolution. And you can now buy cameras that have a thousand frames per second or even more and you can just hit the shutter and it takes a whole series of images. But this is for, from a few years ago where what they said was that instead of taking one camera with very high frame rate, what if you took multiple cameras with more reasonable frame rates and can you combine that information together? And uh, sure enough, they came up with their own camera array. This is also from Stanford. And uh, you can uh, combine, I think they, they triggered them uh, in a way that, it, that they, they can then later combine the information. Uh, but again, you need to calibrate the images and also color correct them and so on. It's just a balloon popping. You can see the sort of light artifacts as the thing moves and because the calibration isn't perfect. And each of these is a relatively low resolution camera, I think about 640 by 480 or something like that. So that's basically it. So that's Epsilon photography. It's how we enhance film-based photography. And the idea is to modify the exposure settings, spectrum or color, focus, camera, scene, illumination, basically anything else that is a parameter of the camera and take multiple images or take images bracketed over time or sensor or pixels and the end result is you get a better camera. And as we'll see in the next class and future classes that this is not the interesting part of computational cameras, this is just something that it's good to know about and there's still research going on on many of these topics, it's just, it's furthering or making even better cameras the way cameras were about for more than a century rather than coming up with cameras that do new things. Yes, that's it.